Thank you for pressing start on episode 29 of Underplayed, KZUM's indie video game podcast. Today we have two secret games, followed by a review of our featured game, Solar Ash. Here on Underplayed, we review indie games of all kinds, the games with small budgets but big hearts, the lesser-known experiences with imaginative ideas. I'm Bo Poe, and joining me is my player too, Disco Cola. How are you, Disco Cola? I'm doing okay. I've been under a lot of pressure trying to finish these games in time, and it has me feeling like a giant hand is crushing me oh. over and over again. <laughs> How are you, Bo Poe? I'm doing just fine, my fellow Void Runner. Those are references to our featured game, Solar Ash, and uh, this is the follow-up to Hyperlight Drifter from Heart Machine, so um, that is a developer that we talked about a lot in season one, and now here we are with their follow-up game two seasons later, Um, so looking forward to that review with you, but before going into uh, the meat of the show with Secret Games and then our featured game segment, I wanted to ask you about your progress with some trophy-related tasks. You oh, s- yeah. You told me that uh, you've been working hard on trophies of games that we didn't necessarily pick for this season. What's going on? Yeah, well, I did go back to some Cyanar Wild Hearts, so I'm, I'm still chipping away at that one. I've only got, like, three of the big ones left. Um, but I did finally get the drifting one done. Uh, mm. Miserable experience, but... That's a great one to get out of the way. That's the, <laughs> I think that's the worst one, yeah. But uh, I've gone back to Hades, and I got the platinum. You got the platinum in I Hades. got the platinum in oh Hades. Oh my gosh. I'm still not done with it, but I got the platinum. Um, I'm also working on Bug Snacks now. I oh. haven't been able to touch it since the DLC came out. Oh, okay. So did you, you platinumed Bug Snacks back when I we played it, right? I platinumed it, but now, but now there's you're three new the, trophies too. Now you're playing the DLC. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. So, so the Isle of Big Snacks. Isle of Big Snacks. Okay. Let's go back to Hades real quick. Okay. <laughs> um, so you said you're not done with it. Yeah. Even though you got the platinum. What do you yeah. still want to do in Hades? Because I know you're uh, a completionist with games even beyond yeah. like the trophy list. What's going on yeah. there? Well, uh, one of my main objectives has always been to do all of the house contractor purchases. So there's some really big ones in there. Um, obviously, I want to get all three Skelly uh, challenges. Challenges. Oh, yeah, because the Platinum only requires you to do two of them. Yeah, right? okay. yeah. so I want to get that third one. Nice. Um, that's going to be a challenge in itself. And uh, if I can find myself doing that with moderate ease, I would love to maximize heat on every weapon and clear Hades with each weapon on max heat. Wow. That sounds really tough. That sounds near impossible for me, but I'm hoping it can be done. At the very least, I would settle for all of those like donations, whatever, in the Hades chamber. Yeah. That doesn't do anything for you, but uh, it's just a, a last accomplishment for for you to keep playing the game. Yeah. Buying all those upgrades... Just by itself, that is admirable. I think I don't think I got close to buying all of those just because they get so expensive. So I started prioritizing the ones that, you know, for the decorations, just the ones that I thought were aesthetically Mm -hmm. really pleasing to look at Um, while also recognizing like, oh, it sucks that, you know, there are all these carpets you can buy. You can only display one of them at a time. Yeah, I I don't love that I better pick the one that I like the most because they're all expensive at a certain point. I'm definitely someone that prefers, like, being able to do, like, 
if I can do multiple things, let me have multiple things at once. I don't want to yeah. pick between one of three because, like, what's the what's the air quotes right one? You know, right. So, well, let me do this for you since you did get the platinum on Hades. Let's see if this works. Let me just. Oh, sure. Have another. <laughs> That's the. PlayStation, PlayStation 5, 5 platinum, sound. platinum sound effect. I tried to find the PS4 one because that's like the more classic one. I think it's just a regular trophy sound, right? It might be. I don't think there's a special one for the platinum. Yeah, that's true. Um, but there you go. Congratulations Thank on the you. Hades platinum. Thank you. Da, da, yes. Da. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Let's move on to our secret games. Secret games. Secret games. I know you're playing without me. Secret games. Well, I'm here to tell you, baby. Secret games. I've been playing too. Secret games. In Secret Games, we each review an indie game we've been playing in secret apart from each other since our last episode recording. We can pick any indie game that we haven't talked about on Underplayed before. Sometimes our secret games have something to do with our featured games. Sometimes they're completely different. And we will start with you, Disco Cola. Let the mystery be no more. Reveal what your secret game is for this episode, which is episode 29 of Underplayed. My secret game is from Studio Koba, and it is called Narita Boy. And I have just sent you the trailer for that. Oh, my. This is uh, this is on my secret list. Ooh. This is, you, you just stole one from me, son. Oh. I know what this is. Okay. Isn't this like a uh, pixel art, like action game? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm aware of what this is, but I will watch the trailer. All right. So, yes, Narita Boy is, in fact, a pixel art action platformer. It sort of resembles a 16-bit era game, but uses some more limited colors and shading on a lot of the elements. So it's, in many ways, somewhere between 8 and 16-bit, but also very clearly made today. So, in this game, you play as the titular character, Narita Boy, and Narita Boy is a young boy that was sucked into the world of a popular video game. So it's a bit of a Digimon story going on here. I um, didn't even know that that's what Digimon was about. <laughs> You're sucked into the digital world, man. Okay. Um, and like in Digimon, he is a chosen one destined to save this digital world from someone called him. Really? In all, in all capitals. Him. Oh. So... A uh, little bit of Powerpuff Girls there, too. <laughs> That's what those. I thought of, too. <laughs> um, he has followers, uh, and they're called Stallions, and you see that mentioned in the trailer there. Him and the Stallions were once inhabitants of the Red House of the Trichroma, and as the name suggests, the Trichroma is made up of three houses of different colors. Yellow, which is a desert-like land. Blue, a wet place with two tribes. And red. Uh, always resembling heat and power. Um, him has removed the memories of the creator, who, as the name suggests again, created the game, and he intends to uh, spread his own code and remove blue and yellow from the trichroma. So you're meant to rescue the memories of the creator so that the creator can stop him from spreading his code. This is really hard. I might just call him... Um, Boss Man. Sure. Can I just call him Boss Man? That would be easy for reference. I think that would help a lot with, with the rest of this. Um, so as you go throughout the game, Narita Boy will learn more about the different regions, receive a good number of new combat moves, 
um, and he'll encounter a great variety of enemies, visit all the different areas of the Digital Kingdom, and uh, perform some tasks for a variety of NPCs, all the while, of course, learning about the creator's life in the recovered memories. Now, when I first bought this game, it kind of reminded me a lot of a side-scrolling Hyperlight Drifter, which I think you can you can see in that visual art style there. Uh, and I was excited to play it for that reason, and it's also why I chose to synergize today with Heart Machine's other game. I think this game does live up to the combat speed and movement of Hyperlight Drifter and a lot of the overall visual flair, but I think that's where a lot of the similarity ends. This game is missing one of the most enjoyable parts uh, of Hyperlight Drifter. Um, Narita Boy is really linear. You don't really get to choose where you go to at all. Um, I shouldn't say at all, but uh, in, in Hyperlight Drifter, you do get to choose pretty much the whole map yeah. uh, is, is open to you. So I was kind of hoping for something like a Metroidvania, and I do think that Narita Boy rolls out new combat moves and enemies in a really great pace. And a lot of these moves do add greater traversal ability, um, but none of the new traversal abilities really get you anywhere useful in zones because once you leave them, you can no longer visit them. Sure. So so there's no like obstacles in the yellow house that I feel like I could have traversed easier with something that I get later in the blue right, house. Right, because once you're done with an area, you're moving on. Right. It's linear. Yeah, yeah. And, and most of the moves that you need, you get close to the beginning of new zones anyway. So um, no, no Metroidvania obstacles that are especially satisfying in this game. Um, like I said, enemies are introduced in a satisfying way, and many of these enemies match the moves that you're learning. So it, it can seem a little bit elementary game design at times, um, but that's an elementary game design element for a reason, uh, because it's, it's effective. Um, the UI is pretty decent. You always know how much ammo you have left. You always know how much life you have, and it's attractive. Uh, within the world and style of Narita Boy to look at uh, when you're looking at that uh, that UI. Music overall is very good. Synthwave is sort of my jam. Not all the songs are winners, but overall very solid. Um, there's even a catchy little tune for the title screen that I'm often humming to myself. Um, lyrics aren't the most inspired in any of the songs with lyrics, but uh, I, I can't write a song myself, so so who am I to judge too harshly, right? Um, the real story is actually that which is found in the creator's memories and how it relates to the present. I think that story is told in a nice way with a nice pace and reveals information at just the right times. I did find it to be pretty predictable, um, and I had one of the main plot twists figured out less than halfway through the game. Um, in some cases, I'd feel smart for figuring it out so early, but this game was still trying to be sort of elusive about it. And I kind of felt like it was just still pretty easy to predict. Bosses can often appear suddenly. Um, you know, sometimes bosses will appear at like the end of world long quests, you know, as they should. But occasionally you'll encounter a boss on the way to somewhere. And I I don't know. It, it makes many bosses feel sort of insignificant. They just sort of show up and then they die. There's no dialogue with most of them. I don't feel like very, very, very minor NPCs should have clearer individuality and intentions than like generals in the boss man's army. I could have taken more from the bosses, just more uh, substance. 
Speaking of combat, many of the complaints that people have about this game are related to the combat, and I gotta say that I don't really agree with a lot of those complaints. Um, it, it can get to be a little one-note, and many of your early game moves sort of remain the best throughout, but that's you know, that's not totally true, and many moves combo really well into each other and allow you to control the entire battle space really well in opposition to your waves of lesser enemies, which happen pretty often. So I kind of have to think where that's coming from is maybe in the jump. The jump is a little bit floaty, but to be honest, this is more of a problem in the platforming arena, and I think the jump actually works really well for combat situations. Narita Boy's natural movement speed is also pretty fast. I could see this momentum being a problem for some players, but again, something that I find occasionally problematic in platforming and mostly actually useful in combat. But on the flip side, like I said, platforming and traversal is far from perfect. Uh, you can climb in this game, and I hate that. I hate climbing in this game. Even trying to latch onto climbable walls is a bit of a dull headache. Um, there are indestructible hands that come out of the ground in this game or out of walls. Um, and these are designed to make you wait. But with Narita Boy's run speed and momentum, taking damage from these hands is pretty common. So these are only designed to make you wait, uh, and that feels real bad when Narita Boy kind of moves the way he does. What else? Additionally, collision with certain kinds of platforms feels off. The dialogue in this game includes tons of programming terms and jargon um, whenever possible, and this sort of takes me out of the game. I get that it's a digital world, but like, just pull it back a little. Programming similes are lost on me at this point in my programming knowledge, so I kind of feel like I'm just reading words on a screen with no mm, meaning. Sure. So now I have two really big complaints about this game. First, and most important for me, let me move with the damn D-pad in Narita Boy. Oh, you have to use the stick? You have to use the stick. Interesting. You earn like summons that cause damage in battle, and they're like area of effect kind of damage, and they're mapped to the D-pad. I don't totally know where else to map these, but uh, anywhere else but the D-pad, I, yeah. I guess. I just If a, it's a side-scrolling platformer, I should be able to use the D-pad always. Yeah. No those, exceptions. Those uh, D-pad inputs could maybe be a face button you hold or one of the shoulder buttons you hold that brings up a menu yeah, that you maybe. select something from. Yeah, or maybe. just, I don't I don't like the like wheel selection yeah. things on the stick most sure. of the time, but just swap it to the L stick and make those summons the L stick summon. I don't know. Just let me use the D-pad in side-scrolling games. Man, it's yeah. always better. And, you know, I think that added exasperation to the difficulty I had with like jump and momentum um, just because you're launching yourself so far from sure. where you want to because you're not pressing just straight up. Yeah, and usually in these games, if moving with the stick is default, usually there's an option to change the controls, right. especially for a more modern game. Yeah. Um, last complaint with this game is that it still has some very big bugs. Uh, one happened in the fight against a boss called Redbeard. We had both depleted each other's HP to zero, and so I died while his death animation was still running. However, it didn't mark the boss as defeated when I respawned, which is what I expected to happen. When I re-entered the fight, uh, the animation started, but the sprite for the true boss was missing, and then the game crashed. So that's one bug. It's, it's not game-breaking, but the second 
big bug that I came to did break my game. Uh, and it's actually well known and happened to a lot of other people. In Narita Boy, there's a place called the Hall of Memories. And this is where you unlock and view the creator's memories. Uh, after one of the memories, and this is near the end of the game, um, I randomly lost all of my abilities, not all of them, but most of them. Whoa. Including my ability to exit the Hall of Memories. What? Resetting the game didn't do anything either as your autosave triggers and that state is permanent. So oh, I had no. to start all the way over. How much time was lost? Uh, well, the first time through, I sat down and read all of the dialogue uh, aloud because I sure. was streaming it. Um, so that was probably like 10 hours, you oh, know. Oh, my word. You know, counting all exploration and stuff. But going through it the second time only cost me like two and a half because I knew hours. where everything was sure. and skipping dialogue and stuff. So that's a pretty bad bug. Ugh. I hope that gets fixed, but it's been two years, I think, since this came out now. Yeah, because uh, this released, I think, around March 2021. Yeah, so I don't know if that's going to get fixed, but I really hope it does. So yeah, Narita Boy was a game that I was really, really excited to receive in the mail and that felt good to play at the start uh, that became a bit annoying to stream due to all of that niche dialogue that became a bit of a frustration in the face of a giant game-breaking bug. Nevertheless, if you breeze through the dialogue, the game is an actually almost perfect length with music, art, and combat that I enjoyed at almost every point. The story will be really impactful for some players. Um, however, I have been fortunate enough in the topics this story focuses on, so a lot of the gravity doesn't really hit quite as hard for me. Um, at this moment, I hesitate to recommend it to players that aren't prepared to back up saves before yeah. unlocking every memory. At the end, even if the story and combat won't do it for you, the visuals should. There are hints at a beat-em-up coming next, which I think would actually be a better game. I still had a lot of fun playing Narita Boy in general. I want to give Narita Boy a 7 out of 10. All right. I predicted somewhere around 6.5. Um, so that is not a surprise, given what you've described. Um, yeah, this has always looked so interesting. I think visually it is just very imaginative with what it's doing. Uh, the trailer is really fun to watch. I'm seeing in the trailer that you can ride some vehicles. Um, there's like a floppy disk-looking surfboard. <laughs> um, there's a horse that's like computerized. Mm -hmm. Um, Servo so, horse? Yeah. How how do those feel to ride? Is that fun? Does that happen a lot too? No. I mean, the the floppy disk one is an ability that you unlock and you need it to cover long stretches of water. Because um, like I said, you can't swim, swim yeah. at all and you don't get that ability. Uh, only members of the blue uh, house can, can survive in the water. Um, but all of the other ones are very short- scripted pieces of the game um the servo horse does get a little bit fun but in general i i don't prefer those sections of the game with this story about being sucked into the game and talking about the creator and stuff does the story get meta at all or is that a spoiler to talk about does it ever like reference our real world no i don't think so your character does start the game in the real world sure but it takes place in the 80s so it's obviously not like our current real world gotcha but there's there's no direct references to to something that we might recognize as 
maybe in To the Moon where they reference Animorphs or anything like that. <laughs> right. All right. Well, that is Narita Boy. One less game on my potential secret games list. Um, and I might check it out one day. It still sounds like I, fun. I, I think I, the combat's really fun. I think you would enjoy it for the most part. I don't yeah. think it's going to blow your mind. Okay. But I think you would still have fun. I played the PS4 Limited Run Games Edition Narita Boys, also available on Switch, Xbox One, Mac OS, Windows, and Amazon Luna. Cool. You've set my expectations at the right place. <laughs> it's time for my secret game. My secret game is The Last Campfire. I like the title. I don't know if I know about this. So I just sent you the trailer. So The Last Campfire is an adventure puzzle game that was first released in 2020. It was developed and published by Hello Games, who are known for uh, No Man's Sky, which is just a huge game that they have supported you know, ongoing for years. This is one of their smaller games, and Hello Games is an independent studio, so this is an indie game. And I will read the game synopsis from the Steam storefront. Quote, The Last Campfire is an adventure, a story of a lost ember trapped in a puzzling place, searching for meaning and a way home. End quote. So The Last Campfire is played in the third-person perspective. You play as Ember, and this is where, similar to Narita Boy, how it's hard to reference him, uh, Ember is part of a species who I think are also referred to as Embers, okay. and yet the character you're playing as is an Ember and is called Ember, as far as I could tell. So it might get confusing referencing that. We'll power through it. We'll do our best. Um, these embers, they wear these colorful robes that hide their faces. They look a lot like Jawas from Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of seeing uh, the little character from Warp. Also kind of reminds me of like the shape of Castle Crasher characters. Yes, they're very short. And uh, at the beginning of the game, there's a group of these embers on this sacred journey. And Ember, our main character, gets separated from the others. And Ember ends up in the forest and finds a campfire that's tended to by a ghost. And this ghost tells Ember about the Forlorn. And the Forlorn are others like Ember who were on a path, but then they lost their way, and they've lost hope. And then also the ghost tells Ember about the Forest King, who is sort of keeping all of the Embers in this place. So Ember has to travel around the forest and find the forlorn who are frozen in place and solve puzzles to reinvigorate them. And this will allow them to return back to the fire and the ghosts who will guide their way uh, along their path again. When enough forlorn are found and saved, the ghost opens a path for Ember to continue. And Ember also encounters this character called the Wanderer from time to time who is another ember on their own path and is always seemingly kind of running away and ember is trying to chase them down. Hmm. The entire game is narrated by this Norwegian voiceover artist named Rachel August. And all the dialogue is spoken by Rachel. Even when ember is talking to another character, all of the dialogue is narrated by Rachel with the style of someone like reading a storybook. Mm -hmm. And Ember explores three areas total. So there's the forests that you start out in. After that, there's the marsh and then the caves. And that's it. 
uh, but they're all pretty sizable. And each of the three areas has its own campfire with its own accompanying ghosts and seven forlorn to find and assist. So there are about 21 forlorn in the game to find. Um, the ghosts at the campfires can give Ember directions to find any forlorn they have yet to save. And they usually do this in with like cardinal directions. They'll tell you to go east or west or okay. north um, and describe where they are. There are also these lost journal pages from a previous adventurer that are scattered around, and those kind of just add flavor to the world, another level of collection and completion of the game. And the gameplay revolves around exploring this world that's filled with flora and large creatures and abandoned ruins. It feels like a mixture between a lot of games I've played. It feels like it has the general look and feeling of a Legend of Zelda game and Death's Door, minus their combat. Mm -hmm. And it has really strong iconography, similar to Journey or Sky Children of the Light. And it has the puzzles and sometimes the camera perspective of, of all games, Captain Toad's Treasure Tracker, which <laughs> I've played on Switch. It's kind of all those ingredients combined into one cozy game. And uh, when you encounter one of the forlorn, it's frozen in place, all of its color is drained, and you interact with it, and that causes the world to transform around you into this unique puzzle tailored to that uh, forlorn. And in these puzzles, Ember needs to manipulate blocks, move idols onto switches, light torches, uh, there are a few where you manipulate steam moving through pipes. Sometimes you need to create new platforms to reach the end of the stage. And eventually, Ember gets a magic horn that allows the manipulation of metal objects, too. So lots of different mechanics in these puzzles. Outside of the forlorn puzzles that reinvigorates them and sends them back to the campfire, there's the world around the forlorn. And that's a more explorable world that has its own set of puzzles. So the general loop is you enter a new area, you find the campfire, you talk to the ghosts, figure out where the forlorn are, solve puzzles to reach the forlorn, and then interact with the forlorn to do a puzzle that will awaken the forlorn and return them to the campfire. So the loop is has got a lot of steps to it, mm -hmm. but there are only three areas. And so by the time you get to the second area, you kind of understand what's going on. So what I liked about The Last Campfire, this kind of feels like a quintessential journey-like puzzle game. And it's a game that explores death and purpose in a really gentle way. And it's ultimately a game about how we're all heading toward death and how we choose to feel about that. Mm. We've talked about games that make us uh, meditate on death. This is definitely one that does that. And it does it in an accessible way and in a way that I would feel comfortable um, having anyone try, you know, no matter their age, no matter their background in games. Um, it's all wrapped in what feels like this storybook where the story and themes are a little abstract, but the presentation is very clean and vibrant. The voiceover work from Rachel August is exceptional. Her accent and the timbre of her voice lend a gentleness to the experience. Um, it's, it's spoken in English, but there's that influence from her natural Norwegian accent and then just the softness of her voice that makes this so welcoming and, and comforting 
of an experience. So love the voiceover work here. It's a defining characteristic of the game, and it's actually some of the strongest voiceover work in all the games that we've played for Underplayed so far. Ooh, so nice. High, high praise. High praise on the voiceover work. The puzzles are mostly a great difficulty level, and they get progressively harder. Uh, the game likes to mix up the puzzles it gives you between the world around the Forlorn and then the Forlorn challenges to keep things fresh. So you might do a puzzle to access a Forlorn, and then you're doing their puzzle to free them, and that puzzle might include some of the elements in the world that you were just exploring, but it's also different enough that it stands out on its own. So I really like the variety of ideas with the puzzles. Some of them really tricked me for a while. It took me a good like 10 or 15 minutes to figure out the solution. So it wasn't too easy. It wasn't too hard most of the time. There's a great surprise as well involving the character of the Forest King who the campfire ghost tells you about at the start of the game that I never would have guessed. And it's something from this game I will think back to uh, for a long time. So those are my praises. Uh, if I could improve this game, you know, this is a hard thing to improve, but I wish the game just felt a little more original. The game does what it does very well, but its identity doesn't feel that unique. Um, its combination of influences is tantalizing. It just doesn't bring a whole lot of new to the table. I think if this game had come out like 10 years earlier, it would be a turning point mm, in, in mm -hmm. indie games and a turning point in games. I had to look up how to solve just a few puzzles whose solutions didn't have a lot of um, good logic to them, I felt. Uh, there was a puzzle that involved stepping on floor tiles in a certain order, and I couldn't figure out the pattern. I was doing all this guess and check, and there, there wasn't a pattern to it that I could figure out. And I had to look it up because it was frustrating me. And the solution turned out to be symbols that were written on the wall in the previous room. And oh, I never would have thought, yeah. I never would have thought to look at the wall. And the game never introduces that as an idea anywhere. So that was a little frustrating. Um, there were one or two other puzzles that were frustrating for different reasons. Some of them feel like you are just trying combinations of how to maneuver objects until you get the right thing that fits in the slot. You know, I'm at that point, I'm kind of just brute forcing it, but some people are probably smart enough to do those things on their own. Um, there are also pretty frequent graphical glitches that happen when Ember climbs a ladder oh. or uh, runs along a wall. When Ember climbs a ladder, sometimes Ember will pop through the floor like a foot in front of the ladder at the top and just oh. come out of the floor. I don't huh. know why. And then sometimes Ember will just kind of disappear into the wall if you're hugging a, a wall. Uh, and then I mentioned those lost journal pages that you can collect. You actually don't need to collect those for any achievements or trophies. They're just optional. They add a little bit of flavor to the world. But overall, they're kind of meaningless and they don't add up to much. And I wasn't getting a story from them. They were more abstract. They were more poetic in what they were saying. So the adventurer who was leaving them behind, it felt like they were writing this really long poem to me. And I, I wasn't like eager to look for them or to piece them together because they just, you know, added a little flavor and that was it. So I wish there was more to that. Uh, but overall, The Last Campfire is a really satisfying folklorish adventure that's driven by really comforting voiceover work. It honestly feels like a storybook come to life. It meditates on death and purpose with heart and simplicity. 
It remixes ideas from well-known games in such a way that it doesn't feel too original, but the end recipe is nonetheless pleasing, and I think it's worth any puzzle fan's time. So I rate The Last Campfire an 8 out of 10. Excellent. And it is playable on PC, Mac, iOS, Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4, which is where I played it, and Xbox One. Well, um, I remember seeing a trailer for this a long time ago, and I was very much taken by the art style, as I always am. I guess I don't know what I expected the game to be. I think I expected more of an adventure game than a puzzle game. Um, and I would call it I would call it a good blend of adventure and puzzle, but to progress, you're solving puzzles. Okay. A lot of them are environmental. Um, a lot of them are just kind of little situations really akin to something like a level from Captain Toad's Treasure Tracker to free those forlorn, especially. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes there is a forlorn who is trapped or like they're on a platform you can't reach yet. And you need to figure out what in the environment do I need to do to reach that forlorn? And then that forlorn has their own puzzle to free them. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I would categorize that in my little mind block uh, area as as more of a puzzle game, mm -hmm. um, just because that that seems to be the primary mechanic there. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about the trophy list. Whenever you talk about a game that I'm familiar with, which actually doesn't happen as often as as listeners might think, and especially one that I recall and wanted to play, I always look up the trophy list uh, and looking this one up. Um, seems like it's a pretty easy, easy completion. Can you speak a little bit to what uh, completionists are looking at here? Yeah, this is a very easy completion. If you read the descriptions for all the achievements, they're abstract. They don't actually explain what's going on, which can be a pain point for trophy hunters. So for instance, like instead of free you know, 15 forlorn, it, it will be embers straying into the dark. That's the explanation for the trophy that you mm. get for freeing 15 embers. But if you look up a trophy guide, you quickly realize to get 100% on the achievements, you just need to free all the forlorn and finish the game. And those three areas, the forest, the marsh, the caves, uh, they can be revisited. So if you get the four embers in the forest to move on to the marsh, you're not locked out of the forest. There is a way to eventually get back to the forest, find the other three forlorn you need, and you just need to get those 21 forlorn and finish the game, roll credits. You've got a platinum trophy. So I, you don't even need to collect those journals. I assumed they were part of the trophy list, so mm -hmm. I was looking out for their little um, treasure boxes that they're hidden in, and I got more than three-fourths of them throughout the whole game. And then I realized, oh, I actually don't need those. That's actually a <laughs> relief. I don't have to- immediately quit. <laughs> yes. So uh, they are pretty easy to find though. Um, so they could have easily implemented that into the list and I'm not sure why. But yeah, it's very easy. Cool. Excellent. Well, uh, I always wanted to check this out, but with so many games I want to check out, it is definitely one that I forgot about. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, probably a second place contender for maybe Jealous Game. Okay. So. Nice. Yeah, it's not doing anything- terribly wrong it is really competent it's made me feel good it felt good to play so i recommend it highly uh those 
are our secret games Narita Boy and The Last Campfire. We will now move on to our review of Solar Ash. It is our featured game. Solar Ash is an adventure platforming game originally released in 2021, developed by Heart Machine and published by Annapurna Interactive. The game synopsis from the Steam storefront reads, quote, from the creators of the award-winning Hyperlight Drifter comes the high-speed and gravity-bending world of Solar Ash, end quote. Solar Ash is a third-person 3D platformer set in the same universe as Hyperlight Drifter, according to Alex Preston. <laughs> Universes are, are very vast. They're very vast. <laughs> he adds the asterisk that there are no explicit connections between these two games. And it's very possible these two games could exist in separate galaxies. Yeah. So not even remotely close to each other within the universe. You play as Rey, a Void Runner, on a mission to save her people from this gigantic black hole called the Ultra Void. And the Void Runners have created this device called the Starseed that is supposed to destroy the Ultra Void. Rey enters the Ultra Void at the start of the game. This is where the game takes place and must reestablish contact with the Void Runners who came before her on a similar mission and activate the Starseed to save her planet. Um, Rey starts the game with her full moveset she can skate along surfaces, uh, which is the primary movement. Um, she can also boost, jump, uh, scan the environment for waypoints, grapple to certain points, and slow down time with this ability called time slip to target grapple points with precision. The Ultra Void has five main areas. Uh, this is the order you explore them. There's the Broken Capital, the Iron Root Basin, the Eternal Garden, the Mirror Sea, and the Luminous Peak. They each have their own kind of environment. Uh, the game is very colorful with lots of colors borrowed from the palette of Hyperlight Drifter. Yes, there is. Uh, in each area of the game, there are these black masses of slime with pink eyeballs called dregs or anomalies, and they have to be defeated by Ray uh, to clear them up. And Ray defeats them by stabbing the pink eye in the middle of the black slime. And when all these dregs have been cleared from an area, a remnant is summoned. And remnants are one of the main draws of this game. They're the giant boss enemies of the game. They take different forms, uh, but they all have the black sludge interior and a white bony exterior. And Ray has to attach to them, skate along their exterior, target a weak point, um, and hit it. And after each hit, these remnants become more dangerous. They can even heat up to a very dangerous temperature very quickly. Mm -hmm. So you have to be mindful about uh, how quickly you're skating along them. And when you defeat a remnant, it helps to power up the star seed. So that's why Ray is chasing after them. Ray is assisted by SID, which is an acronym for Centralized Yottabyte database and SID is a robotic AI that contains basically all the information possessed by Ray's people. So this is who you're talking to a lot in the game to figure out some of the story and where to go. There's also this currency called plasma and it shows up as pink liquid 
kind of floating around the world. Sometimes yeah. it's in ore deposits that you can hit for uh, to get a lot of it at once. But this is the currency of the game. It is used to buy more shield hits from Sid, basically to give you more health yeah. when you're fighting smaller enemies as well as the remnants. Ray can also find stashes left behind by uh, previous Void Runners. And this is how Ray learns about their stories. And finding these stashes also unlocks new suits with different passive abilities, too. So, lots to take in there. It's a lot different than Hyperlight Drifter. Yeah. Which is where I'm curious about something. Um, you, Disco Cola, you know, love Hyperlight Drifter. It's one of your favorite games of all time. Yes, it is. And I'm sure you were highly anticipating Heart Machine's follow-up. And I'm just curious, before you even played Solar Ash, when you saw the reveal of, of Solar Ash, saw gameplay, what were your impressions seeing this new approach in perspective and gameplay that Heart Machine was going for? Like, how did you take that in? Yeah, I mean, the colors, of course, grabbed me right away. I recognized, you know, that distinctive set of colors. So I was excited for that. Uh, but in general, I was pretty disappointed that the game was going to be in 3D. I think that, you know, they caught lightning in a bottle with Hyperlight Drifter. And I was wondering why they were going to deviate that much from their gold. Yeah. Their, you know. They found their specialty. They found what they do best, yeah. you know, with their first game, arguably. I mean, it's hard to prove that when they haven't made a lot of games. Right. But what they made in Hyperlight Drifter is a masterpiece. Yeah. And so why not just stick with that? Yeah. More of that, please. Yes. So I was I was initially disappointed. I was still always going to get it, and I still bought it regardless. You know, sure. I bought it on release day regardless of even knowing if a physical release was <laughs> happening in the future. It's a game I would double dip on anyway. So I was still excited for it, but uh, I went in with slightly tempered expectations. Okay. And now knowing that, what are your overall thoughts on Solar Ash? Yeah, so like I said, initially disappointed that it was going to be in 3D. Also, initially disappointed that it was going to have voice acting. One of the things that we talked about and raved about in Hyperlight Drifter uh, was the effective world built with no speech. But that being said, the voice acting was actually super great. Um, Verse, especially one of the other Void Runners, I loved his voice. Very impressive. Ray is also great. Sid is great. Um, so I think the voice acting is really good. Uh, it's just a very different story told here mm -hmm. and in a very different way. Yeah, Hyperlight Drifter had lots of really quick stories spoken by all the species in like that central town. And they just show you like a triptych of three pictures yep. telling you their whole story up to that point. Yeah. A very efficient storytelling and also really restrained, like like focused yeah. in how it's trying to tell you all this information. And you still you get um, world told to you like through those forced pans of the camera to like the titans frozen yes. in mountains and stuff. Yes, and so you get to sort of deduce in your own mind like what has happened to this world. Yes, so and even though even though it's like top down two D, that's where it could also show you like very large vistas and yeah. spectacle. Even though it's you, you think this two D style is not going to show you that much scale. It showed you scale by panning that camera. Yeah, yeah. So, very different storytelling mechanics here. But, anyways, I'm going to try to move forward without 
comparisons to Hyper Light Drifter. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna this, be hard. This is its own game, sure. and I will tr- try to treat it, um, try to treat it as such. Uh, I think the art style and the character design and the world design, and especially the boss design, uh, is rad as hell. I think the bosses look really cool. It's like Shadow of the Colossus meets slimy body horror, and yeah. I kind of love it. Um, there, there are a few like visual horror aesthetics that I gravitate toward, and that like tarry slime bone. That's that's kind of my thing. The music ahead of the release, the team had mentioned that Disasterpiece returns uh, for Solar Ash, and while that's technically true, um, that is kind of a bit of an exaggeration. Is he only does a couple of the tracks uh, on the soundtrack? Yeah, there are. There's like a another person who's like the primary person yeah, on the soundtrack, but yeah. there are several other people. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right? So I'm not I'm not disappointed with the music from from Troop uh, Troop Gamage and and Joel Korolitz. All that music is still very good. Uh, and while many of the tracks don't necessarily what I say play well on the radio, uh, I think the music fits the world incredibly well. It's so hollow and ethereal, and it just exudes this haunting void, and that's the point. Um, I think the story is actually pretty solid. I would say that there's two main twists. One of them, I guessed, about halfway through in the Ethereal Garden. Uh, Which is about halfway through the game or so, Yeah. yeah. And the other, I couldn't guess ahead of time. Though looking back through some of the collectibles and some of the interactions... There's hints to this twist in in small details, and I think that's really cool. Mm. Um, one of the things that seemed weird, though, is that uh, each zone has sort of all the same things. It's a little bit like what you were talking about in the last campfire. There's sort of this cycle. Um, you know, you find the missing Void Runner, destroy the anomalies to reactivate Sid, fight the boss, uh, and the zones are also unlocked in a specific order. So you can't like choose your order like you do. Uh, but Ray kind of reacts to this cycle as if it's brand new each time she visits a new zone. Um, just in, in the word choice that she has, you know, when talking to Sid or, or talking to herself, Mm. uh, after reading some of the audio logs left behind by other void runners. So it's a little bit, it feels a little bit strange. Um, does it kind of break immersion? For yeah, you a it does. Bit? Yeah. It would have felt more organic with a little bit more acknowledgement of some of the, some of that continuum. It's like, oh no, you know, this happened to Tufty too. I can't believe all of my friends are gone, right. you know, instead of just like treating it like it's this fresh thing Yeah, that she's experiencing for the first time. Um, as far as gameplay goes this is one of solar ash's greatest strengths as you would expect from heart machine but it's also some of its most frustrating points um combat with lesser enemies feels good enough it's pretty forgiving in most cases but at the same time you can also take hits a little bit easier than i'd like at times Mm -hmm. especially people who shoot lasers at you yes (laughs) very much so (laughs) Uh, throughout most of the game, there's no fear of falling into pits, which is great because this is a 3d game with so much speed and momentum. Yes. And no fall damage. And no. Yeah. And so it, you know, with that much speed and that momentum, usually it can be so easy to lose your jump and it still is in this game, but, uh, no pits for the most part, which is great. And the coolest part of the gameplay again, is that speed and momentum 
in this game, like you said at the top, you can skate, boost, you can grind on rails. It's like all the best parts of turn of the century skateboarding games. Yeah. Um, though I didn't like take out a stopwatch and test it. When you combine a lot of these things, I think your speed and momentum actually builds on top of each other. I think it stacks. Um, I'm not hundred percent on that, but, uh, it just, it feels so good to combo these things together and you get to make these incredible leaps that you wouldn't think are actually possible. Um, I think that this feels best in the Broken Capital, which uh, unfortunately is at the beginning of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and the smallest area, excluding kind of that central area with the star seed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, access to all of this speed is important because some zones, in my opinion, are just too unnecessarily sprawling. Even the crater, I think, seems bigger than it needs to be. Same with the garden that I was talking about. The broken capital, even. uh, But that one also stretches vertically as well. And I kind of hate that part of it. Um, I appreciate, you know, that this is an entire world, essentially. But I just, I wish the quarters were a bit more confined, a bit more disciplined. I'm the Mm -hmm. kind of person that's sort of compelled to explore every bit of explorable map. And that's kind of why I don't like open world games. Yeah, it's hard to do that in this one. It's, yeah, it it wastes a lot of time if you do because um, there's there's not really a reason in most cases to explore every single corner like I did in Hyperlight Drifter. I, okay, no more comparisons. I'm <laughs> sorry. Stop it. I'm yes. sorry. No. Um, the big downside to all of this, though, is the way that the camera can dictate uh, directional momentum. There are a couple of points, particularly when riding on some rails, where I spent dozens of moments trying to make the same jump over and over and over and over again and missing each time. And it's because I didn't have the camera angled correctly. And it took me a long time to figure out that that was even the problem. So apparently position of the camera plays a role in dictating your directional momentum. I don't think it's a secret by now that I prefer 2D games just in general. And the main reason for that is that I'd prefer to not deal with a camera uh, so to have to be extra specific with my camera in order to make certain jumps sort of irks me a bit. Um, speaking of certain jumps that irk me, uh, this game has climbing points, and I kind of hate the climbing in this game. It's it's anti-momentum, and I think it could have maybe taken a Super Mario World approach where you can essentially like jump up and climb simultaneously to save yourself a little bit of time. Mm. Ray feels like the kind of character that's capable of doing that, sure. even though the climbing points are all slime. Make it slower than being able to jump straight up, but faster than climbing. Just, yeah. just a middle ground there. And there are some areas where you're climbing up lots of pillars of slime and things are shooting at you, and it's all much faster than you can climb. That can be a weird combination. And then if you have to, like, climb around a corner at the same time yeah. too that adds another element of the camera frustrations right so um each boss and the pieces to unlock each boss essentially become a speed and platforming challenge and i think this is a great way to handle the main objectives of the game given how much attention i think went into the controls um, however there are certain environmental objects you can interact with but sometimes it's not like clear when you can interact with them. I'm thinking particularly of um, the boss fight uh, Burning Hunter. Um, There is a piece that you can interact with that I never would have 
guest would aid in the boss fight. Oh, yes. Uh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. This is the one in the Luminous Peak. Yeah. This is, yeah, one of the last ones. Yeah. I don't know how I changed this, but I, I had to YouTube this boss fight, and then I felt incredibly stupid once I realized that it was just this this simple thing. There are a lot of interactive environmental objects that are very obvious, like the mushrooms uh, that you have to interact with. Those right. are pretty obvious. This one I felt kind of cheated by. Um, and that was unprecedented in the game because that's a late game boss. No other boss up to that point requires you to use something that isn't part of the boss to get onto the boss. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that, and and I knew with a flying boss that, you know, it, it could be different, but this, even still. Um, yeah. Because well, that object works differently in the boss fight than it did when you were using it before. It does. And I was conditioned from uh, Shadow of the Colossus. There are flying bosses in that game, but the way you get onto them is you wait for them to swoop down to you and then you jump onto That's them. That's what so I, was I was expecting. Expect, yeah, I was yeah. expecting something like that. Didn't happen. Yeah. There are various collectibles uh, in Solar Ash in the form of Voidrunner caches, which are essentially audio logs. There's also journal entries from someone with the adorable name of Danderpaws. Yes. Uh, and then points of interest with a few different NPCs. Um, you had mentioned that you get new suits with unique abilities by collecting all of those audio logs in an area. Um, I think the hierarchy of Void Runner caches to get suits is actually pretty fun. Um, some of them can be pretty hard to find, namely in the Broken Capital, again, because of that that vertical nature of the area mm. um, because the way you locate these audio logs is, is essentially by seeing their visual flare in the distance. They have a good low distance and you can see them from pretty far away. Um, but when they're hidden on the top of a building and you're at the bottom, mm -hmm. it's hard to see those. Yeah. So collecting them there was a bit frustrating, but otherwise pretty fun to collect. Uh, and I felt like a suit is a good reward the point of interest collectibles are not necessarily as fun to find or interact with. However, I think that these pay off in terms of immersion. It just jives better with the good ending. Without doing these tasks, I don't think I would actually like the good ending at all, to be honest. Um, the journal entries are fine. I kind of like hearing about one person's journey and especially where it ends. Um, but finding a few of these these journals is just just total bug snorp. Like there's, there's a couple that are just totally nonsense to find. Yeah. Um, and I don't think the game like tracks how many that you found, like the same way that it does how many points of interest you found with those NPCs. Um, I think you just kind of have to know which ones you've seen and which ones you haven't. Yeah. I, I essentially required a guide yeah, to find for, some of those. For that one, I played the PS5 version, which thankfully tracks like on the trophy how many out of 16 or whatever there are. Oh, really? But I didn't know which six, which like 12 out of 16 I had. So when I watched a video guide, I had to watch really closely and go, okay, I recognize getting that one. Oh, I'm not sure if I got that one. I better go back to the Luminous Peak and see, oh yeah, I did get that one. Yeah, essentially so I just went through all of them again, yeah. regardless of whether I had them or not. Um, you mentioned the time slow ability. Um, this can actually make a lot of things easier, but I pretty much only use it at certain points in boss fights. Um, using it just sort of feels breakneck for me if I'm going so crazy fast uh, on a tight timer and then I slow down time. It is necessary, though, occasionally. I just don't like doing it as much. So, all of that said, <laughs> ultimately, even with my tempered expectations 
And as a follow-up from the developer of one of my favorite games of all time, it didn't quite meet what I had hoped it would be. Um, This won't be a 10 from me, but I think the game creates an attractive and menacing apocalyptic world with sound and video built on a fascinating premise with an especially satisfying bad ending. Uh, I think the game feels good to play at almost all times, um, but could have just been a little bit more disciplined in general. Thankfully, death and failure is pretty forgiving overall. Um, Even without the speedrun and hardcore trophies uh, yet to do, I would still play this game again. Uh, This is a game that I want to get better at, and I do look forward to fighting almost all of these bosses again. I give Solar Ash an 8.5 out of 10. Oh my, wonderful. It's probably somewhere between like Outer Wilds and Death's Door for me. Okay. 8.5 from Disco Cola. You mentioned tons of things that I thought of too. I will probably repeat some of your thoughts. I we're pretty aligned on our thoughts on a lot of this stuff. So I'm I I expected that maybe you didn't like this game quite as much as I did. So I'm I'm excited to hear. I think maybe you appreciated some of the positive aspects a little bit more than I did because our scores differ, but a lot of my thoughts are Uh, synonymous with yours. So I think Solar Ash is an adventure game filled with lots of beauty and tragedy that is worth any platformer fan's time. I I really do think this game is worth playing. It has incredible scale and spectacle. There are more open areas like the Mirror Sea and the Luminous Peak, even though they are maybe too large, they are awe-inspiring with with the scale that they offer. I took a moment to look around at everything when I was climbing super high up on those floating platforms in the mirror sea mm, mm-hmm. and just looking at everything below me and seeing something way, way below me that's I almost can't even see anymore and thinking, oh, I was there 10 minutes ago. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, so I think that's awe-inspiring. Uh, And it also extends to the remnant boss fights. They are of a scale that is epic, that sometimes take you to unimaginably high places above the ground. Uh, I loved getting up way high in the air on some of them. Getting to the top of the remnants is exhilarating, um, at least at first. And when the game flows just right, when you're fighting those remnants, you find this groove of skating and hitting these rods before a certain timer runs out. Um, and then using that time slip ability at just the right moment. I actually really liked using the time slip ability. I, I wish there was more of that in the game because um, I like that feeling of, even though I there's not a ton of precision to it, Ray herself has this precision that looks really cool and the feedback of it is satisfying. Um, I agree the voice acting is top notch. Uh, when you pick up those Void Runner caches, the characters of Irving and Verse, Gozam, Pyatt, and Tufty loved listening to all of them. Each voiceover actor in this game is giving it their all. And a lot of them are incredibly worried or scared or curious about the world. And it comes across and it makes me more invested mm-hmm. in this world. And I that is honestly a huge surprise for me. It might make my list of surprises for the season in how awesome the voiceover is in this game that's a follow-up to a game that didn't have any voiceover uh just incredible i i love listening <laughs> to the voices here the general locomotion is satisfying 
especially when you're gliding on the clouds. There are clouds everywhere. Yeah. I think that feels really good. Um, you mentioned grinding on rails. It feels really great in the way that like a Tony Hawk game feels yes, or Jet Set Radio. Um, there is also just a really efficient map screen in this game that tells you everything you need to know on one screen. I love that I don't have to flip through all these tabs. Whenever a pause screen or a map screen or a journal screen is designed in a way that has great UI and has a lot of information efficiently presented to me that's easy to navigate, I have to point it out. I love the UI in this game. Some of my frustrations with Solar Ash. The main attraction to fighting the remnants can have a lot of awkwardness. I found, and it might be because of some of the camera direction stuff you were talking about, I found that jumping on their shells to hit all those points and then get to the weak point can sometimes be inconsistent. Sometimes I couldn't control whether I landed back on their like skeleton or in their slime mm -hmm. after hitting one of their rods. And when I would fall in the slime, it wouldn't feel like my fault. Yeah. It, it would feel like I am not in control of where Ray ends up after that stuff. And so that's why I say it is exhilarating to get on top of these remnants at first. But then when you're climbing back on for like the fourth or fifth time, because you've hit the slime or maybe you just fall off of the remnant entirely and you didn't even know what you could have done to fix that. That just gets old pretty fast. So mm -hmm. then it's more about just grinding it out until you get the right camera angle and momentum of the remnant and momentum of Ray herself. And it sometimes it's luck. Yeah. It feels like. Um, yeah, so and I think that's when I started to notice that I'm pretty sure momentum builds because mm -hmm. I would do a run where I'm boosting a whole ton and I would jump three times as far as I did the last run. Yeah. And so I would you know, overshoot my jump. Right. And I, I want to talk about more about like physics and how gravity works a little bit later. But yeah, the design of the skeleton on, on the outside of the remnants, there's obviously like an intended sequence of jumps and speed that you're supposed to gain but I don't know what the game wants me to do. Does it want me to build up momentum as fast as possible? I feel like if I build up too much momentum, I lose control of Ray, you know? Mm -hmm. And I want to be that good at the game, but I feel like the game doesn't let me do that. Um, combat can feel secondary with smaller enemies, yeah. and it's definitely optional in a way that feels underdeveloped. So a lot of small enemies we mentioned can be frustrating because they hit you really easily, but since these areas are so open, they can be skipped without penalty a lot of the time. So fighting isn't usually worth your time unless it's with one of those remnants. And gravity is influenced by camera direction. I feel like that isn't communicated uh, in the game. And I feel like just the choice of that to be part of the physics engine is really weird. It's an odd choice to me. And it's only after I started watching videos about the game that I figured it out. I didn't even figure it out in game like you did. I guess I didn't even have the awareness to think of the camera direction influencing some of that stuff. But when I learned about that, I thought back to some of my moments of frustration and then moments when I had success after that frustration and it made sense, mm -hmm. clicked into place. Like that's why I couldn't do it the first six times and then the seventh time it worked. Um, I think the last two or three areas are too large, similar to what you said. It could just be like 
way too much distance that doesn't have enough like quality content in there. If it, if it was more disciplined, like you said, I think it would be, it would feel much more focused and intentional. The plasma for me is not a really exciting currency because you can really only buy shields as far as I could see in the game. And it's essentially more hits for Ray before she uh, needs to restart at a checkpoint. And you end up losing a shield bar after every remnant fight. So when you defeat a remnant, you lose one of your maximum health, basically. And so you need to end up buying back more shield hits to recover that and to be at the place you were before. And that just feels like less of an optional transaction and more of a necessary transaction. It feels like more scripted. It feels like I'm collecting all this plasma because I'm going to have to, because I'm going to lose health after beating all these remnants. And that just doesn't feel that exciting to me. It doesn't feel dynamic. Um, and yet at the same time, plasma is littered everywhere. It looks important. It's part of the visual identity of the game, this pink globby stuff floating around everywhere. So when I first start up the game, I think, oh, I, I better collect all this stuff I possibly can. What if it's used to buy new weapons? What if it's used to buy armor and like accessories and stuff? I think back, sorry to compare to Hyperlight Drifter, but <laughs> thinking back to Hyperlight Drifter, you can buy upgrades for yeah. your guns, swords, your grenades, all that stuff is purchasable and you can choose how to purchase things. And here it's just, oh, I, I have to buy more health and that's it. Um, wish there was more there. Um, the music for me, I think is effective at adding these like haunting synths. There's a lot of character to that, but I'm kind of right there where it's just uh, not as memorable as Hyperlight Drifter. And sometimes the music can just be upstaged by what's going on on screen and, and the gameplay. So I, d I forget to listen to the music. Um, it's not really making as big of an impact on me. But overall, Solar Ash is an impressive first 3D effort from Heart Machine, who are known for a top-down 2D masterpiece. Uh, Solar Ash carries over a lot of the tragedy and color palette from Hyperlight Drifter, um, but then it also offers scale in a way that's unthinkable in any other kind of game than a 3D game. And there's a great sense of spectacle. There are some fundamentals like the minor enemies and the currency that feel like they need more development to, to be justified in just being in this game. And when the combat with the massive remnants isn't interrupted with clunkiness, I think the game reaches a great flow state. Uh, I kind of was between a 7 and a 7.5 for this game. I'm going to go with a 7.5 for Solar Ash. Excellent. That is higher than I expected, honestly. I, okay. I expected between 6.5 and 7. And I think I maybe in the first two or three areas, I might have been more at like a 6 or a 6.5. I think the game kind of grew on me, especially when I started doing um, the cleanup of like finding the caches and just getting the 100% save file, I think, you know, I it, it really grew on me. Um, and then seeing where the story went, for mm -hmm. sure. The story has some surprises um, that it hits that I didn't see coming. I didn't see those surprises coming. So um, I liked seeing those too. Yeah, the physics and gravity are very interesting in Solar Ash. I started watching a speed run of this game where the speedrunner was explaining some of the tech behind how you can exploit what's going on under the hood. And a lot of these platformers have something that's called coyote time. And this is the time after leaving a ledge when gravity kicks in. Oh. 
And in this game, it's very large. Wow. It's a very large amount of, of time. And it can lead to multiple jumps that don't feel intentional because in that time before gravity kicks in, you can actually input another jump. And speedrunners utilize that. They abuse that Ooh. to get extra height or distance with how far they're traveling. And for me, it kicked in just kind of accidentally. And I couldn't figure out those mechanics until I did research afterwards. Um, but it sounds like you did a lot of that figuring out, especially with how the camera works. Yeah, I figured out the camera thing. I don't yeah. know about getting essentially extra, a double jump. Extra jump. Yeah, you can do you can do like a double or maybe even triple jump in this game. But my understanding is that the camera needs to be looking like up towards the quote unquote sky for you to have less gravity. Is that correct? I think so. I think, you know, whichever, whatever you're looking at, that is the directional boost. Mm -hmm. So like yeah. I had an issue where I was grinding on a rail uh, and I needed to boost to a climb point, but I wasn't adjusting my camera at all because I assumed like most of the other rails, this rail is just leading me into that jump and will take me on uh, the path that I need. But that's not the case. You yeah. need, I needed to rotate my camera behind my character so that the boost uh, direction was directly forward. I had frustration with this particular mechanic in the mirror sea, and it was when I was looking for one of those like 16 journal entries. And I don't know if I'll be able to describe the exact one, but it's the one in the mirror sea that's on like a cliff next to the giant pillar yep. of clouds. Yep, that's that's the one I was specifically talking okay. about being bug snorp. Yes. Yeah. That one, uh that was the time when I tried it like six times and I couldn't figure out how to get enough momentum to get onto the ledge that gets me to the top of the cliff. And it's because my camera was pointed too far down. So I got this really nice momentum going off of this ramp. I thought this will get me there and then I just sank almost yep. immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So I wish that w were explained or I wish maybe that was tuned in a way where it wasn't as influential on where you go. So did you have any other observations about how physics and gravity work? Because it feels like there are lots of variables. Yeah. In that same point in the mirror sea um, on that pillar and a couple places in the ethereal garden, um, gravity didn't quite work the way I thought it did because I felt that I was pretty close to where two different gravitational poles would meet and I thought if I had enough momentum and enough height on one of these points of gravity I could escape gravity and reach the other point of gravity but I had trouble getting that to happen and I think that would have been fun mm -hmm. to do yeah a fun trick to perform um, also would have helped in obtaining that collectible because that, that's pretty close to where two different points of gravity meet. But it just, I couldn't get that to work. Maybe your speedrunner that you watched knows how to manipulate gravity a little yeah, bit better. Maybe. But Have you played Super Mario Galaxy? Uh, no, I have it, but I haven't played it. Okay, so I think this game is sort of halfway doing Super Mario Galaxy physics yeah. with some of the stuff that it does because it feels like you should be able to 
transition between two gravitational poles, and it's hard to get that figured out if if that's even a thing. Mm-hmm. That's a mechanic that's explored up and down, pun intended, in <laughs> Super Mario Galaxy. And there's even something in the Eternal Garden that reminded me like so much of a boss idea mm-hmm. from Super Mario Galaxy, but we can get to that in a second. Let me escape gravity. That would be so fun. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess with the plasma as a currency, I was thinking about how they could rebalance it or, you know, repurpose how currency is used. So we could buy those shield heads. That could still be a thing. But I just wish there was more, there were more options in there to make it feel like I was making a meaningful choice. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, like, after finding those void runner caches, maybe those are adding the lore and those are adding the ability to wear the outfits, but maybe they're like unlocking the outfits in Sid's store or mm-hmm. something so that then I need to be mindful about where my plasma is being spent. And at that point, it would definitely need to be rebalanced so that instead of shield hits costing like 500 and 1,000 and 1,500 and 2,000, they'd probably have to be multiples of like, a hundred or two fifty, yeah, to make room for the costumes or reward the player with more plasma. Every time they pick up plasma, they're getting like ten instead of one or something. Yeah, just change the economy of what's going on. So I think that's that would be like a big improvement to the moment to moment stuff leading up to the remnants. I would want to go out of my way for when they have a line of like ten pink plasmas, I started just skipping those because I thought, eh, it's not yeah. that valuable. Right, you know? exactly. More moves. Like, we were talking about how combat kind of feels secondary. I, you know, I feel the same way. I When I was talking about I said, it's good enough. Like, it feels good to do the triple hit or whatever. But that's it. That's all you really get. Yeah. Um, and none of the enemies really get crazy. I don't know if I want crazier enemies, but, like, maybe give Ray like, this cool shield on her arm so yeah. that you don't have to worry about those, you know, laser buttheads as much. That would be awesome. That'd be great, yeah. you know. Or just um like a longer sword. Like it has the same damage, but you can just you can reach a little farther now. Yeah. yeah those yeah. kinds of things maybe, would be great. Maybe a slightly higher jump too. Yes. And that wouldn't like necessarily break the game because there are so many weird physics yeah. that are already playing in concert with each other. So like yeah, that would just be like a nice convenient upgrade to reward me for looking for those plasma bits. So there is a remnant called the withered eye. I love the withered eye. Is that your favorite remnant? Uh, it wasn't my favorite boss fight, but design wise, design design wise, world wise, story wise, my favorite remnant. So what I think is interesting is you have to um, unlock some rails. There are like little, uh, spores you can pick up yeah. and you bring them to like a hive and it grows a grind rail yeah. that takes you to new places. That's like probably the poorest way to explain it, but I don't know how else <laughs> to explain it. And that's how you get to the boss fight of the withered eye in the eternal garden. And um, that specific moment is what I was referencing with super Mario galaxy. There are bosses in super Mario galaxy where there's just a tiny planet that Mario can really quickly like cover just Mm -hmm. by running around. But on that tiny planet, there's a giant boss. And so you're just on this essentially pretty small platform maneuvering around the boss's legs and jumping on top of it whenever you can. 
So that was a moment where I thought, this is very clearly influenced by Super Mario Galaxy, or yeah. if not, it's a happy accident. So did, did you have like favorite boss moments, favorite bosses just in general to fight aside from the designs? Yeah, I did hate pretty much, I didn't like the Burning Hunter. I did feel the most accomplished once I finished that because yeah. I felt like I was I was really hitting some good flow with the platforming, even when it wasn't necessarily working for me. Um, but the the one in the mirror sea, I think, is my <laughs> yes. favorite. I Rust think, Dragger. Yeah, yeah, I think that is the coolest boss. I think I had the most fun with that, except for maybe the very, very final boss. Um, I did think the very, very final boss was pretty cool. You have the good ending? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'd, Rust Dragger. I And the Ouroboros is, you know, a, a good way to start, too. Yeah, Crater Ouroboros is um, one that I became familiar with when I first played the game, but then became really familiar with when I tried hard mode or hardcore mode. Uh, but yeah, I think my favorite's Rust Dragger. He has the giant sword that he plunges into the ground and you grind up the sword Yeah, and it's massive. Yeah, That's very fun. And you have to hit the rods along the way up. Yeah. Um, so great rhythm to that one. I liked that one a lot. Now that we're talking about it, I kind of wish that you had a little bit more like uh, Shadow of the Colossus here where you could like, once you reach a top point or a flat platform that you could like just take a minute to sort of look around. Yes. Because you're just, you're booking it because you you are on a timer with every single boss fight. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't get to really like look around at those impossibly high heights. But uh, yeah. I, yeah. You're yeah. encouraged to like maintain that momentum. Yeah. You have to keep hitting the rods. They're on a timer. If you don't hit the next one fast enough, they heat up to 10,000 degrees. That is a big difference that you can't just climb. Shadow of the Colossus is much slower. You're, yeah. <laughs> you're climbing up them and they don't even realize they're on you or you're on them. Yeah. So <laughs> Crater Ouroboros is uh, obviously the first boss. It's in the intro area, which what did you call the intro area? Oh. With the star seed. Did you have a name for it? I just called it Crash the crater. Crater. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I was going for all the trophies, got the 100% save file. I think you did that too. Yep. And I thought, okay, let's try hardcore mode. I've done this whole game. Um, hardcore mode is just where you need to have extreme speed and precision. The amount of time between hitting those rods before the remnants heat up is very short and um, there's just very little room for error. And even with the smaller anomalies in all the areas, you have to do them very fast. Oh no. Very, very fast. I had to do the first three anomalies, the dregs, and those took many attempts on their own. Like I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is, this is the intro area and I am taking <laughs> 15, 20 minutes trying to do this one drag. And there are many, many more after this in all the five subsequent areas. So uh, I, I started losing hope at that point. But then I got all three. That unlocks Crater Ouroboros. And I tried beating Crater Ouroboros for over an hour. It took me maybe like 10 minutes to get the first hit. And then it took me another maybe like 25 minutes to get the second hit. Ooh. And then on the third hit, it's harder and if you make one wrong step, you start over at the checkpoint. And so I was just getting hit, starting over at the checkpoint, 
going over to the health box to recover my extra shield hit so that I didn't start back over from the very start yeah. of the boss fight so I didn't have to do the first two hits again. And it was just mind numbing. It was it was so hard. Uh, my hands were hurting. Yeah, my hands were hurting, and and the whole first playthrough didn't make my hands hurt. This was making my hands hurt. So, do you have any interest in trying this? I I mean, I'm going to. I have to. It's a heart machine game. I have you to have get to. the hundred. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's sort of like the the downside of of Hyperlight Drifter is that. They did this game that was so great and people loved it so much, but it was also difficult. And I don't I don't think it's as difficult as a lot of people seem to think it is, but they have that reputation now. And so they create these games where difficulty can become the focus um, at times instead of just really solid gameplay. And that's not to say that Solar Ash doesn't have solid gameplay, but I think difficulty came first in a lot of places here in this game um and especially that scene in hardcore mode because even hardcore mode in hyperlight drifter i think is manageable like it's hard it's noticeably harder but i still think it can be done this feels different it's uh definitely a different kind of hardcore mode than i'm used to where it's not like if you die once you have to start the whole game over it's not that brutal it's forgiving with the checkpoints, just like in the normal game. You start back over. If you get hit, you start at a checkpoint really close to the boss. So all you have to do is heal mm -hmm. that one hit you got so that you don't get a game over. And I do think it's possible for me to do. I just ran out of patience that yeah. one night, and it was getting really late. So ever since then, I just haven't had the energy to go back. Um, so I, I think I could do it. I'm kind of feeling the same way I feel about the hardcore stuff in Hyperlight Drifter, which I still haven't done. It's just like, I need to have the motivation to want to do it. And after going through the whole game in just a few days, uh, even though it's, you know, not more than an eight, 10 hour game, uh, it's, it takes a lot of energy for me to do that, especially when there are more games to play for underplay. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, who it's knows not, it's not I'll something it. I've even attempted yet. I, I expect to do that in between seasons. Mm -hmm. um, it's not one that I'm going to pick up here on nights that I stream instead of play another game. So yeah. it'll be a little bit before I pick it up and, and try it out. But I, I do intend to do it, and um, I will get 100% on that file and never do hardcore mode again. Nice. And then you'll <laughs> also have to do the speed run. You have yes, to do the game but in I'm three hours or less. Never but... doing that in hardcore mode. Okay. Yeah, you can do that in easy. Um, and... That's kind of incredible to me that you could do that game in three hours or less, but apparently it's it's possible because it took me like 10 hours to beat the game. But... Well, I mean, we're looking for the Void Runner caches. It's true. The the yeah. game gives you the waypoint to the the dregs. So yes. that's that. And I played on normal mode yeah. where everything was a little harder. So you could play on easy and probably just... I forgot that there was an easy mode. I might just do that then. Yeah, do that. Um, when you do the hardcore mode too, you can wear the absolution suit, which is a combination of all the powers of the other suits. But you have to beat Crater Ouroboros first. That was the thing that kept me going and going on Crater Ouroboros is like, if I can just do this last hit, I was on his last hit forever. If I can just get their last hit, I get that absolution suit. Maybe that is the secret to making this pretty breezy. And I just... It's that garlic salt. It's that sauce. You need it. it I need it. And I, I don't know how much of a difference it will really make, but uh, that gives me a little hope. So 
that's our review of Solar Ash. You can play it on PC, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, Xbox One, and Xbox Series X and S. Disco Cola rated it an 8.5. I rated it a 7.5. That's the end of this episode of Underplayed. You can find more of our episodes at kzum.org slash underplayed and on common podcast services like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Our music was composed by Jack Rodenberg. Our art comes from Onimochi. Underplayed is on Twitter at underplayedpod. You can find me on Twitter at bopo, that's B-O underscore P-O. And check out that same handle on the GG app where you can see my game lists. And uh, also I've started writing mini reviews for a lot of the games that we've played on Underplayed. I've gotten through all the games from season one and I also tweet those reviews. I've been keeping an eye on it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, I am at Disco Cola on Twitter and on Twitch. I streamed this as well as Narita Boy. I am technically on the GG app, but I have not done much significant there. Yeah, you'll catch up on there. Uh, Next time, we'll have two more secret games to review, and our featured game will be Baba Is You, a puzzle game developed by Hempuli. Until then, everyone, keep on playing. (laughs) 